Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the government's proposal to raise the normal minimum pensions age has been roundly slated by the pensions industry, the reason being that under the proposals in their current form, it is almost impossible to know for whom the age has in fact been raised and to which of their pension parts it applies. It's been branded a hugely complex mess. There have been calls for the whole thing to be scrapped or at least paused until such a time as somebody sensible can come in and rewrite it sensibly. Uh, We'll ask what's gone wrong, what needs to be done to fix it. Next up, the pensions regulator and the Financial Conduct Authority are in the mood to do things, and that does tend to bring this reporter out in a cold sweat. Uh, They've published a discussion document fleshing out their ideas for a new DC-wide value-for-money framework. Uh, Since they've said many of the precise details will have to be worked out by the industry, we'll ask our industry experts uh, to work out the details for us. And then finally, movies and music are currently awash with 1980s nostalgia. And now the economy is having its own Stranger Things moment. Inflation has surged past the Bank of England's target, jumping from 2% in July to 3.2% last month, with the expectation being that further rises are on the way. Uh, Inflation did at least peak early in the 80s and then come down. So we'll ask whether that's likely to happen again and what the impact on pension schemes will be either way. I'm Benjamin Mercer, reporter at Pensions Expert. I'm joined today by Linda Whitney, partner at Aon, and by Stuart Earle, partner at Eversheds Sutherland. Thank you both very much for joining me. And we will begin with the uh, normal minimum pension age. Uh, this reporter is keenly aware that should inflation not prove transitory, the higher the NMPA goes, the less likely he is to have any money left when he uh, reaches it. But the various protections included uh, have caused quite a lot of fuss. There's draft legislation which gives individuals the opportunity to join a pension scheme by April the 5th, 2023. But the scheme rules on February the 11th, 2023 already say that the member has an unqualified right to take pension benefits below the age of 57. They have then the unqualified right to take pension benefits below the age of 57. Uh, The Treasury did extend this as well after parts of the industry criticised the initial proposal that members should keep their protected pension age on a block transfer, but not individual transfers. This means, of course, the NMPA rise doesn't apply equally to everyone or to all of their pension parts, and that's been heavily criticised by the pensions industry, who have called, as I say, for some of it to be uh, scrapped or at least postponed. I think we will kick off here with Linda, if you don't mind. That's a very broad sort of sketching out of the very confusing protections that are in place. How exactly does this work and why does it not work? I'm going to go back in time a little bit here to 2010, when we first raised the minimum pension age from 50 to 55. So to some extent, we have lived through this before of seeing people who had a protected minimum pension age in a set of scheme rules um, that enabled them to maintain that position. And you've also got to remember the reality of how many people can actually afford to retire at these very early ages in any case. The government's aim was to try and keep a normal minimum pension age that was broadly 10 years before state pension age. So the proposal to push it up again from 55 to 57 would be in line with that. So it's not so much the objective that I think the industry is struggling with, but the detail of the implementation. You could have put it in very strictly and applied it uniformly, and that would have created a number of losers. What they have instead done is created something that is relatively flexible, but incredibly complicated, leaving people with uncertainty about what their personal situation is for individual pots. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right, Linda. And I think to come back to the point about you know, reliving the 80s, we, we're seeing a lot of remakes in, of movies. And, and I think what's happened here is there's been a remake of the protections from 2006 and into 2010 and, and almost a, an attempt to lift and drop a lot of those protections without recognising that the industry has, has changed significantly since 2010. There's greater flexibility in accessing benefits. And so to your point, Linda, whilst yeah, people probably can't afford to retire at 55 or indeed 57, the temptation to be able to dip into some of their pot and actually start taking some lump sums and, and, and tax advantages of doing so is there now when, when it wasn't there um, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And, and yeah, we are in an unholy mess, um, or we're looking at an unholy mess where an individual could potentially have a, a minimum pension age of 50 in one pot, 55 in one pot, and 57 in, in another. And, and I I pity and have absolute sympathy for the scheme administrators that are going to have to pick this up. Very simple example, you get an individual who, who transfers from, from one pot to, to another, they take it on an individual basis, all of a sudden they've got one pot within that new scheme which they can take at 55 and the rest of it at 57 and that 55 pot has going to have to be ring-fenced, administered separately. It was bad enough trying to communicate this to members back in 2010. I, I fear it's going to be even harder this time around. Cognizant of Linda's point that, that the strict application of such a change would have created some losers, it does sound as though the uncertainty will create losers as well. Is there a way in which the change could be affected without creating losers? Or is it just a case of finding the way forward which makes the fewest people lose out? And in which case, would a strict application of the rule without all of these protections be better despite the good intentions of including these protections. And then did you want to come in on that? Uh, yes, I think it's a tricky area because, as I say, it's, it's a bit of a balance between creating something that's so complex that people don't understand it or creating something that's very simple but actually could have adverse consequences for the minority of people who, who would otherwise be able to retire between 55 and 57 and potentially have you know built their plans around that. So I just think it's a, it's a really tough decision here in terms of how we create these uh, situations. I think part of the complexity is coming from the fact that the deadlines are in the future, whereas I think previously when arrangements like this have been brought in, the deadlines have always been introduced uh, sort of immediately or in the immediate past so that you didn't get this collection of people who in theory could do something in order to get into a scheme and get a new bit of protection. And that's where one of the additional areas of complexity comes from this time. And Stuart, well, one of the other concerns or some of the other concerns that have been raised are that the protections as they currently exist would actually create incentives that, that run contrary to other aspects of government policy. So, for instance, if a small pot still exists, which enjoys the protected benefits for an earlier normal minimum pension age, there will be less of an incentive perhaps to consolidate that small pot. People will be more keen to keep it if they know that the earlier, the easier, the nicer rules for them still apply to it. Is that a significant or, or a principal concern? I mean, how, how contradictory are the incentives created by this, uh, this proposed change? Yeah, it's it's a fair observation, and it doesn't make consolidation any any easier, and and perhaps less attractive for individuals if they're doing this on their own, off their own bat. You know, if if they're part of a bulk transfer 
from from one scheme to to a master trust, for example, um, there's greater chance that their minimum pension age of of 55 will be retained, and that's helpful. But if an individual themselves are looking to to consolidate and bring their their pots together, it's going to be harder to ensure that that they can maintain that age of of 55, um, because I said earlier, you know, they could end up with a position where they've got one pot at 55 and the rest at, at 57. They could potentially lose out altogether. And we do have a problems with the regulations at the moment that anybody who looks to to make a transfer before April 2023 could lose their minimum pension age of 55 altogether and all of a sudden find that their entire pot is is pegged to 57. Those sort of communications, those sort of issues need to be writ large and, and thrashed out and, and made aware to individuals before they make a decision over the next you know, 18 months or so if the regulations aren't tweaked. Uh, if a member makes a decision now, which they'll, they'll regret when they get to 55 and think they can take their pot, but, but unfortunately can't. And I think that's a really good point, Stuart, which is around how we communicate and advertise just the broad change, forget the details, but the broad change of a normal minimum pension age moving from 55 to 57. So we do have to get out there as an industry and as government to get across to people that pensions are there for your older age and this sort of 10 years before state pension being a normal period to be taking it early. And, and and people planning for, you know, 57 or later. And for most people, it will be later uh, than that for their retirement. Excellent. Just one more on this then, because obviously we've had these calls for it to be scrapped, for it to be changed in quite significant ways. If, if you were to give predictions for the future, I mean, would these calls be heeded? Do you, do you anticipate there being changes made, either of you, to the proposals that they currently stand, or will the government be in sort of bloody-minded mode and press forward regardless? Uh, Linda, do you want to start with this one? I think that's hard to tell, really. I, I don't have a strong view on this one as to whether uh, we'll see movement or not. I think we'll see tweaking to to the way in which this will be implemented. And I suppose we're more at the technical end there of implementation rather than it not going ahead altogether. All there are points around, you know, somebody straddling April 2023, depending on whether they're 55 or 56, when their birthday is, how they can go about taking their benefits either side of that date. Things like that need to be worked through so that we don't have too much of an immediate cliff edge, but I don't anticipate that we'll see a a material change in in what's already out there. Fair enough. Well, the the positive of that, of course, is that the more mistakes are made in government policy, the more articles we get to write about it, and therefore the longer I stay employed. So I suppose (laughs) it's good for someone. We will move on to value for money in that case. The Pensions Regulation and the Financial Conduct Authority's uh, discussion document, as mentioned, poses this new value for money framework. It outlines uh, a framework that would force defined contribution schemes to disclose more data around their investment performance, their scheme oversight, costs and charges. Uh, the regulators are looking to create what they call a holistic framework uh, for assessing value for money in this sector, as well as allowing members in the industry itself to compare costs and charges. The proposed framework would allow trustees and independent governance committees to assess investment performance and service standards which are also deemed important in determining whether a particular scheme is uh, delivering value for money. But there are concerns about transparency, and the regulators do seem to have left it to the industry to invent uh, metrics by which things like customer service can be measured. So, Stuart, I'll kick off with you on this one. So far, the only way I've been able to determine about working out value for money from customer service is calling 
I won't name a company and then being very annoyed by their inability to solve my problem and then determining I'm not getting value for money, for instance, for my internet service provider. How, how does this work, though, in practice, sort of broadly? I mean, how the, the, I know the, the regulators have said it is for the industry to work these things out, I think. If you were to do some sort of back of the fag packet workings out for us, how would you devise such a system? Is it a sensible system to begin with? I think I think the, the concept of value for money certainly needs focus and and the rationale behind this discussion document make, makes entire sense so that it, it sort of drives performance of of the providers and, and, and the trustees, particularly for a number of pension schemes which have been sort of left fallow. They, you know, investments are, are set and their members have left them there and probably don't even know they are are there. And, and in the meantime, pension accounts are being diminished by charges. How we actually go about doing this, and the, the discussion document talks about, you know, a real focus on investment metrics, investment performance, looking at customer experience, the, the communication and governance that is is undertaken in respective schemes, as well as good old-fashioned costs and charges. Now, the issue that I think, from my perspective, uh, probably twofold. One is how you can set some metrics that are easily comparable across all of these schemes it seems almost impossible. Uh, I mean, I'd defer to Linda with her background. Undoubtedly, we'll have a better angle on that. But it just seems there are so many different variations across schemes, whether it's a workplace scheme, a non-workplace scheme used for auto-enrollment, whether it's default strategies, lifestyling strategies, whether they're old style with profits funds, guaranteed annuity rates, all of those are so different that that trying to find a way that you can compare metrics and compare value for money is, for me, seems very, very difficult to, to achieve. And I suppose, secondly, this is just burdening schemes with yet more and more reporting requirements and analysis that needs to be undertaken. And look, you know, I just fear that sometimes we forget there's a pension to be provided at the end of this, and, and maybe that should be a a focus, but you know, maybe Linda's views on, on metrics will be more insightful than those of a lawyer. Seems like a good moment to bring Linda in. Linda, what do you say? I think it is sensible to be taking that initial objective of being able to compare a master trust and a GPP on a level playing field. So the direction that they're coming from in the pensions regulator and the FCA working together for a set of rules, um, I think is actually you know quite positive. Talking about those investment returns, absolutely, investment returns are a really important driver of the member outcome. And recognising the net return, the actual return that the member receives after charges being the thing that drives that outcome. Absolutely, as Stuart says, there's lots of different types of investment. And what we really don't want to do is to lose innovation in the investment market by strict charge limits that actually drive down the ability to innovate rather than drive down the cost and therefore improve the overall member outcome. Because if you're getting you know, a lower net return because you're getting uh, lower inputs and lower costs, then that isn't actually driving a better outcome. In terms of the actual measurement and metrics of the investment returns, there's clearly quite a lot of work to be done. And I would support Stuart's question around, and how much does that work, particularly for smaller DC schemes? And so I think underlying this is this general direction of travel 
of actually smaller schemes being encouraged to look at their situation and encouraged to look at consolidation. Uh, but that isn't always the simplest thing to achieve. I've you know, worked with trustees. We're sitting there looking at situations where actually they know it's not a great DC scheme that they're looking after, but actually finding uh, somebody who wants to take that on is not necessarily straightforward. There are barriers to that as well. I think that's absolutely right that we've got a, a whole host of, of schemes out there sitting on probably billions of assets in total when you look at the number of smaller schemes that there are for whom this is going to be almost impossible to achieve. And also, as you say, Linda, there's probably no home for them to go to. I mean, one further sort of observation I've got in terms of the discussion document, whilst helpful and, and the direction of travel makes a great deal of sense, it, it is clearly focused, and I think in the first couple of paragraphs, you know, unashamedly says this is focused on accumulation. And I think that misses the biggest point of all in that accumulation is is barely half of the problem because, yeah, you might be able to fix some costs and charges and you might be able to shave, you know, a couple of basis points here and there. But the big deal is when somebody comes to take their pot at 55, 57, 65 or goodness knows what age, if they don't have a good product or an innovative product or a cost-effective value-for-money product at the end, when they're into that decumulation phase, the previous 30, 40 years would have been for naught. So I, I do think as much as there is a focus on getting things right to encourage and to help savers and understanding what's there, if we miss if we take our eye off the ball for decumulation and don't have equal focus on that now, um, we're storing up a bigger problem in, in my view. Excellent. Well, I suppose that's something we'll, well, I was going to say we, we will look forward to seeing that, but if there's a bigger problem being stored up, then we, we don't look forward to seeing it at all, do we? But uh, we'll hope it doesn't happen, but that's certainly an interesting point. We will move on to our final topic of the day then, which is uh, inflation. There is a little bit of good news here as well, which means that anyone who is sort of playing around with stocks and cryptocurrency can now afford to actually do quite badly with stocks and cryptocurrency and still end up at the end of the year better off than someone who left their money in a bank. So I think you've got about a 3% leeway for irresponsibility these days, which could go up to four. Not that that's investment advice in any conceivable way. But um, inflation, it's only a first time in my lifetime, actually. I think I get to say, do a story about inflation. Certain transient effects are expected to disappear from the figures in the relatively short term, like the impact of the government's eat out to help out scheme. But the, and the ONS has cited a range of other uh, impacts, including shortages of supply chain staff and increased shipping costs and uh, demand increases following the lifting of national lockdowns. These continue to push up inflation, not immediately clear at the moment as to how transitory uh, these things are. So I suppose there are two questions here, and I'll begin with Linda on the first one. Some of the problems that are potentially being stored over pension schemes depend on inflation lasting for quite a long time, don't they? So I suppose the logical first question is, do you expect inflation to linger or is it going to be one of those sort of temporary phenomena? It's also the million dollar question, which by the time you've answered it will be the £500,000 question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, inflation, it's the moth that eats away at your savings. Absolutely. It, it's taking slightly larger bites at the moment, but uh, whether that continues is, is in significant uh, doubt. I think there's clearly a whole range of things that do put pressure on it over you know, the next year or so. Um, and we're seeing a lot of those in the news at the moment, but may not quite hit these September uh, figures that are particularly key for pension increases for this 
this year. Over the longer term, much harder to judge. There's lots of things going on, pressures in the industry in different directions as to where inflation will go after that. But I think in terms of this September's figures, which will be key for pension increases being provided next April, what we are likely to see is something that's perhaps just a shade lower than August. So hopefully, um, actually relatively straightforward for schemes. So the headline figure that you see in all the newspapers these days is CPIH. So this is CPI, including housing, which in August was 3%, and I think is expected to drop a little in September, probably. RPI up at 4.8 and CPI um, on its own without the housing bit of 3.2 in August. Particularly of interest in pension schemes if RPI goes over five, because we have a lot of schemes that uh, have discretionary increases above five. So that one would set decisions running that schemes would need to make if it does go over five in September, although I think probably won't. And uh, so some really quite sort of nuanced uh, effects going on. And also, I think a lot in the news, and this was one I will hand definitely over to Stuart on, where schemes are still having those conversations about their scheme rules as to what is a definition of inflation that they can use uh, for their particular benefits and which schemes can move from RPI to either CPI or CPIH. Yeah, the rules lottery continues, doesn't it? And and nobody could have foretold the, the stroke of a pen, you know, 15, 20 plus years ago and how much it would have had an impact on an individual member's um, level of increase now. And and you're absolutely right. We're, we're now sort of into that period of RPI, where RPI can still apply, is, is going to be really significant given the you know, the potential increases and, and the wedge between RPI and CPI. Uh, and so that just brings ever greater focus on whether schemes can make the leap before 2030 from RPI to, to CPI. And I think these numbers, whilst, you know, it might be that, you know, the inf- higher inflation is is transient and, and won't be with us for too long, it will just bring to to the focus of finance teams and, and, and treasury teams in, in sponsoring employers say, so, well, actually, you know, if we can make that move sooner, it, it just takes out some of that risk uh, as we run into the proposed change to uh, to RPI from, from 2030. The other point I was going to pick up, Linda, from, from what you were saying, and agreeing up entirely with the point about discretions, but another issue which I've had calls to even think about as often as this week around discretionary increases is not even where RPI or exceeds 5%, but also for those members which, who built up benefits before 1997, where a large chunk of their pension is likely to be subject to discretionary increases anyway. Those members have seen the headlines, high inflation, and yet their pension won't get an increase. And, and I've already had a call from one chair of trustees who has been made aware that there's a, a group of pensioners who will be, um, you know, buttoning down the door to, to ask for a discretionary increase in light of the, the higher levels of, of inflation. So I think, you know, it's one for trustees to be focusing on from that perspective as well. I think it's interesting when you look at DB schemes and how they've been managing inflation risk over the last few years. So for a lot of DB schemes, they have actually been hedging uh, at least the guaranteed benefits, discretionary being a different issue. 
But where they've got guaranteed pension increases, we've seen liability-driven investment used and high inflation hedges. So even if inflation goes up, actually a lot of schemes have assets that will also go up and protect them um, in deficit terms from that. But for the smaller proportion of schemes who've still got um, new benefits accruing, the cost of those new benefits accruing goes up again as inflation goes up. So again, if you're talking about what a finance team's looking at, they'll be looking at that as well. And for DC members, well, they've often got the risk themselves because you know there's a risk either if they're in drawdown or if they've bought fixed annuities that actually they are going to face the inflation on their own without any support. So I think the fact that DC members have for the last quite a number of years tended to buy products where they don't have inflation protection built in leaves that generation exposed to uh, higher inflation, much more so actually than the DB schemes who've been uh, hedging out inflation risk. Excellent. I think that brings us just about to the end of the programme. We've got time just about for uh, always a pensions angle. And I think, Stuart, you're uh, bringing that to us this week. Yeah, it just proves that wherever you go and whatever you do, pensions is is around the corner. Uh, and I was mentioning earlier that um, a few years back now, whilst uh, enjoying a, a family holiday, my wife was uh, heavily pregnant at the time and had one of those moments of a few twinges at two o'clock in the morning. So uh, we did a mercy dash to a, a hospital in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the country had to basically knock the door down to, to get in and, and uh, were very, very well looked after. And it was only after an hour or so where I was chatting away to to the doctor who, who was taking care of us that uh, we realised that her father was actually a pensions partner at a, a firm uh, who I'd been working with on a deal that week. And uh, so we enjoyed a, a few moments exchanging the pleasantries of what it's like to be involved or have a connection to pensions. Meanwhile, my wife was reaching for the gas and air. But yeah, it doesn't matter where you go or wherever you end up, there's always there's always pensions there. Small world. Very small world. I, I sort of hope that that would conclude with the, the pensions are the equivalent of gas and air. In which case, I was uh, sitting in on a, a working pensions committee meeting earlier today talking about increasing access and opportunities to access pensions guidance. And it did suddenly, as you were saying, that story occur to me. Maybe if pensions successfully calms down pregnant women at the moment of birth, just send in <laughs> pensions advisor and that will do the job. And you've solved two problems. But um, maybe, maybe that's not as tenable. Maybe it was my delivery rather than the topic. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, on that note, I think that does bring us to the end of the podcast. So uh, thank you both to Stuart and uh, to Linda very much for joining us. As ever, we will be back in uh, two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 